Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Joint Cast, interviews across the world with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. So grateful you joined us today. Our fourth episode is an interview with Michelle Givings, author of Step Up, and an expert in understanding, architecting, and leveraging change. Michelle enjoys a distinguished reputation across the Asia-Pacific region as the keynote speaker, advisor, facilitator, and executive mentor of choice for many leading-edge corporations and global organizations. Welcome, Michelle. It's it's a thrill to have you on our, our just our fourth joint cast, and I can't tell you how much fun it was to actually receive a gift-wrapped book from Down Under several months ago, then finding out just two weeks later that we're both speakers at a Sydney, Australia conference. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. I always love the fact that our world is not as big as we think it is. Indeed. So your LinkedIn profile seems to touch on the arts just a bit. Is that a passion of yours? It is. It's one of those things. I, you know, look, I love the work that I do in a corporate sense, but I think having a connection into the arts opens your mind and when you go and watch theater productions or go and hear music the connection that it has with you and almost like a spiritual physical sense is incredible and I'm very fortunate to be on the board of an organization called the Arts Law Council of Australia and it's a not-for-profit organization that does a lot of low-cost or pro bono legal work for artists. And, um, yeah, so it's definitely a passion of mine. And that's wonderful. Given given the way you interest, introduced yourself in your book, Step Up, I almost had you pegged as a, a left-brainer, maybe in a, an accountant or an auditor, how you stretched out of your comfort zone to explore that. So that was very, very fun to see. But uh, before we start talking about your wonderful book, Step Up, how do how do people find you? How do people find me in terms of on LinkedIn and Twitter and things like that? Yes. Yes. Um, so the easiest is probably to go directly to my website, which is www.michellegibbings.com, and you'll find all my contact details there. And also um, people can sign up to my weekly insights and top tips that I send out and also feel free to then reach out and connect with me through LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and all the other usual social media platforms. Lovely. So let's let's turn then to your book, Step Up. I'm always interested in what types of of books and people influence people at a at a deep level beyond the book or if you will, their inspiration. And you picked a pretty powerful quote by Viktor Frankl on page 34. It said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our freedom and our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and happiness. What did Frankl teach you? His book, Man's Search for Meaning, I mean, wow, it's a profound book. Um, I, you know, I often think in life we learn so much from the people around us and I had never heard of this book and then about 15 years ago someone said to me, you should read this book. And his learnings that he had from his life experiences in the death camps through World War Two, and what he found in terms of how 
you know, the people who were able to kind of cope mentally with what was going on and his ability to make a choice in that situation as to what he was going to do to survive a horrible situation. And it's remarkable because you think, you know, so often we can get caught up in our own lives and, you know, I've never confronted anything at, that, that he's confronted and yet he was able to choose how he was going to um, cope with it to the best that he could. And so I found when I read the book, it really is like this awakening where you go, wow, I have so much choice in my brain as to what I'm going to do, what I'm going to elect affect me and not affect me and so often we can get caught up with little things that really are just so inconsequential and yet we turn them into bigger things than they need to be so it's definitely I always say to all the clients I work with you know it is in my top 10 books to read that's lovely just just to share a bit with you I had a running year and a half or two debate with a, a very intellectually oriented colleague of mine in our startup company years ago and the argument was always based around is freedom granted or is it something surrendered from within? And the basis for my arguments was was the same book by Frankel. And I, I think over time I wore my colleague down and got him to see my point of view a bit more. So so that was very, very fun. A lot of a lot of the people who, who attend our leadership excellence courses that I facilitate are technical people or subject matter experts. And you have a very relevant message for them, that you can be that type of person and probably believe your technical skills or, quote, what you know in that sense is the most important factor in your career and personal success. Now, obviously, you, you transformed beyond that, but did you feel that at one time, and when did your point of view begin to change? It's interesting. I think part of it is because I've had such a varied career. I think, you know, sometimes people look at my CV and go, how is that possible? You know, how do you go from being a company spokesperson to, you know, running a large scale um, change program to then becoming a head of compliance? And I never defined myself by my skill set. I always saw myself as a business leader. And so with that, it meant that I then felt I had a whole raft of different choices. Um, and what I used to find when I was working with people is often they would define themselves, oh, well, I'm a compliance person or I'm a finance person and, and that's it. I, you know, I can't do anything else because this has been my technical skill set. And I used to think, but hang on, you know, as you're moving further up through the ranks, you're often not hired because of your technical skills. You're hired because you're a good leader or your ability to solve complex problems, your ability to create a coalition of people to be able to get, you know, change happening. And, you know, when I then looked at how I was defined and what I was known for, I realised, well, I was actually known for the person who got things done, solved problems and built really good teams. So I wasn't known for my technical skills. I was known for my relational and leadership skills. And I think once you understand that, you can then go, wow, there are so many options in front of me in terms of the different roles I can do. I'm not locked into this one choice. So what would be your primary message then, Michelle, to someone who's still on that technically oriented point of view? What's the best piece of advice you could get them to broaden their, their point of view? To understand, because I think sometimes there's a fear, you know, well, I'm, you know, I'm the technocrat, I'm good at this, this is, this is my safe zone. And to realize that leadership 
all of the kind of competencies that go with being a good leader, they're all learned skills, just as learning how to, you know, build a budget, build a spreadsheet and, you know, develop a strategy. It's just a different type of skill set. And so all of this can be learned. So I, I really come from the premise that, yes, there are some people who are naturally born as leaders, but most people learn how to be good leaders. And so if you want to advance in your career, accepting that understanding how I influence, build relationships with people, create a good team and be a good leader is essential. And so I therefore need to spend time equipping myself with all of the skills and competencies and the attributes I need to be a good leader. Now, you just brought up teams, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious when I, whenever I hear someone talk about teams, do you have a, a favorite team development story? A favorite team development story? Look, it's, it's interesting. If I go back through my early history in my career, I could tell you some horror stories because I really didn't have much of an idea as to what I was doing. And, you know, I had learned sort of almost through osmosis and my childhood, you know, this is what it meant to be a leader. And then I realized over time that all of those things that I had learned um, from people around me, including my father, um, but my father was quite hierarchical and brilliant man, but the context in which I was working and the context in which he worked was quite different. And so his view of what it meant to be a leader and really the view of what I needed to adapt to to be a good leader was quite different. And I was then very fortunate um, in my early 30s to start working with this lady who was without a doubt pivotal in my understanding of what it meant to become a good leader. And she said to me, Michelle, one day, you know, Michelle, I know you you think the work's important and, I, and it is. And I know you're really focused on the output and getting good results and, you know, you're really ambitious. And she goes, that's great. But she said, at the end of the day, the work is the work. And when you move on to another role, people will forget the work that you've done. They'll forget what you've achieved in terms of your deliverables. But what they will remember is how you treated them and how you made them feel. And your role as a leader is to develop the people around you. And that's what you'll be remembered for. And it really stuck with me and it shifted how I saw my role as a leader. You know, it didn't mean I stopped focusing on, you know, getting stuff done. But I then realized, wow, there was so much more to this. And really creating that deep connection with the people in my team, really helping them see where they could grow and develop and what they could do to be at their best. That created such a deep connection with them help them fulfill far more meaningful roles. But it also then meant for me as a leader, I walked away from those roles feeling far more fulfilled than if I just got stuff done. That's fantastic. And it reminds me a bit of uh, Mark Crowley's book, Leading from the Heart, who, who has a very similar point of view in terms of helping or advocating for others as one of the essential foundational tenets, if you will, of actual leadership. You, you cited uh, Carol Dweck's construct of the fixed mindset or viewing intelligence as static and limiting. How common do you find that mindset? And what are some tips you can share with the audience to how to overcome that? 
It's interesting. When I think about mindset, I always say to people, you know, it's not black or white. It's not binary. You're not one or the other. I think we all operate on a continuum and there'll be some people who have more fixed elements than others. But, you know, if I look at myself, for example, there are absolutely areas where I have a growth mindset. And then there are other areas where I do have more of a fixed mindset. I know I have to challenge myself when I'm thinking about things. And I'll also often say to my clients, you know, Fixed or growth mindsets you can apply to how you see people because we will have a fixed mindset on a person. You know, that's who they are. They can't change. They can't develop as opposed to going, actually, everybody can learn and develop if they've got the willingness to actually spend some time and some self-awareness to go, hey, this is where I need help. And I think that's the hardest thing with whether you've got a fixed or a growth mindset is can you self-identify? And so I often say to people, if you're struggling with this, find someone around you, whether it's a trusted colleague or a coach or a mentor who can help pick you up or help you identify and work through where are the occasions where I'm more likely to have a fixed mindset than a growth mindset. And once I've self-identified those areas, to then go, okay, well, what are the practices that I put in place to help go, "Mm, when I'm faced with this situation, what do I now need to do and what are the options in front of me? Because it is this sense of awareness of where you've got issues, awareness in the moment when it's actually happening, and then recognizing that you've got a choice to make. I can go down the fixed path or I can go down the growth path. And what's that going to lead me in terms of the outcomes? And therefore, what do I want to do about it? It it's a common thread in your book, and my my descriptive word for, for that as I read it was actually just feedback. It, it's very clear that there, maybe it was a magical step that you just described, the importance of feedback in order to grow. It's, it's one of the most difficult things I find communicating with, with clients and, and people who come to, to leadership courses, the importance of feedback. But for you, how do you ask for feedback, and what and what conditions are required for people to offer genuine feedback to us? Yeah, look, it's interesting. I, I mean, I would say my husband gives me feedback all the time, so <laughs> um, whether I ask for it or not, but it's good because I will debrief my day with Craig and he can often help me see things from a different perspective. And so having someone who you can do the private reflection, but then share back and go, well, how would you have approached this? So I always say to my clients, that reflection process is really important. Reflect at the end of each day, what worked for me, what didn't work for me, what could I have done differently? And if you can't then work it out yourself, you know, having that sort of buddy that you can share ideas with um, becomes really useful. I look at feedback through a number of different lenses because it's creating the right environment for someone to feel comfortable to provide it, and then also creating the right environment for you to feel receptive to hear it. Um, And often people will give feedback at a time that the person's not willing to hear it. You know, it might be it's the end of the day, they're tired, they're highly stressed, and all they're hearing is noise or they're hearing criticism, as opposed to delivering feedback at a time when someone feels more relaxed or they're really clear that your intent on providing the feedback is genuine and is really done in a heartfelt way that I'm doing this because I want to help you as opposed to, hey, I'm giving you feedback because I think my ideas are better than yours and I'm trying to find fault and criticize. I think as a leader, it's really important 
to be explicit with the people around you and your team that you're looking for it. So if I go back to my days when I was working in corporate, I knew that one of my biggest challenges was speed. I talk fast, I walk fast, I think fast, everything I do is fast. And so I knew that because of my pace, I can easily run the risk of leaving my team behind, that I'll be running so hard, I'll turn around and they're 10 steps behind me or nowhere to be seen. And so I used to say to my team, I need you to help me slow down. If I'm in this pace because something is urgent, needs to get done, I won't I'll get almost like tunnel vision. I'll get so focused on getting this done. I won't see that I need to slow down and I need you to help me. And I found by being explicit, it made it so much easier for them to go, well, Michelle's already aware that this is her area where she needs help. So it's easier for them to say, hey, Michelle, slow down. And then I go, oh, yeah, of course. Thank you. And often as leaders, we don't do that. We're not comfortable to share where we think we need help because we'll see it as, you know, oh, we can't be vulnerable. And so therefore it becomes hard for team members to give feedback to you because they think, well, you're my boss. I don't want to do this. I don't know how you're going to react. Um, so when you're explicit and you give, and permission's the wrong word, but you are being really clear, this is what I need from you. It makes it both easier for you to hear it because you have actually asked for it and also easier for other people to deliver it. I, I, I feel that uh, completely. When, when I wrote my first leadership philosophy seven years ago and I wanted to focus on how do I ask for feedback, I ended up putting the phrase in it that says, I need your feedback, comma, especially when I don't think so. And I thought that was both a, a humorous and accurate way to, to call out to others that go ahead and wrap the note around the brick and send it my way. Hopefully it's a, a Nerf brick and not, not too tough when it hits me, but, but I need that. <laughs> yeah, lovely. That's great. Let's take a quick break. What places to visit remain on your bucket list? Choink is teaming with Amazonia Expeditions, the Amazon jungle's leading ecotourism operator, to introduce the Amazon Leadership Experience in 2018. Join us in the Tuayo Reserve to experience the most biodiverse region yet studied in the world while also becoming an energized leader. Please contact us if your organization is interested in this unique once-in-a-lifetime experience. Back to, back to the fixed mindset that, that we talked about just a bit ago. You brought up an empowered mindset, and you said an empowered mindset is created by three Ps, paradigms, possibilities and practices. Can you describe for us how that works? Yeah, sure. So when you think about paradigms, they're in effect like the mental constructs in your, your head. That's how you see the world. And I always say to people, now we're in a world that's constantly changing. And so your fixed view of how the world is, your fixed mental patterns of behavior, you need to be prepared to disrupt those so that you're ready and equipped to be fit for the future. Because if you just rely on what you've done in the past to help you in the future, it's not likely to work for you. So when you can kind of break your paradigms, you're then able to actually see, well, what are the possibilities in front of me? What are the options that I've got, the choices that I make? And I, you know, I always look at life and I go, everything in life's a trade-off. You know, this whole kind of myth, you can have it all. It is just that, it's a myth. And it puts so much pressure on people to feel like they've got to have this perfect life. And nothing in life is perfect. 
everything is a series of choices and with those choices there are consequences and outcomes and making decisions fully aware of that makes it easier to go well this is a choice I made and I'm happy with that choice because I know it may mean that I'm not doing this and I'm foregoing that but I'm doing this because it's going to give me what I think is going to be the best outcome for me and for the people around me. And then the practices are effectively habits, creating those new habits so that you're, you know, you're disrupting your kind of mental sort of patterns of behavior. You're looking at the options in front of you and you're then creating daily practices, daily habits that really help set you up for success. And they're things around, you know, daily meditation practices, journaling if that's what works for you so i always say to people you know with your daily practices you've got to find what works for you because it's not a one size fits all you know how is it that you find time to connect in with friends and family where are you finding space in your day to continue to learn and continue to reflect and so when you build daily practices in your day it makes it easier for you to accept what's also going on around you. And one of the key ones that I know that, I mean, I do meditation every day, but the other key thing for me is just daily practices of gratitude where you sit back and think, wow, I'm so lucky. You know, if I wasn't doing this, I could be doing that. But, you know, I'm really happy with the choice that I've made and grateful for the life that I've got. I really like that. It's And it seems to be something that's missing. It almost seems that in, in the professional ranks today, if you will, it's a badge of honor to just be so busy that you're crowding out other things when it seems it's quite the opposite. What we're mostly crowding out probably include people who are very valuable and important to us, although there's this crazy pressure to wear it as a badge of honor. On, on there's, I was say, there's a lovely quote, and I'm going to forget who said it, but he, the quote is actually in my second book, so I shouldn't forget, but I am. But he talks about, um, you know, what are you busy on? You know, ants are busy, but they're not necessarily busy doing something. So what are you actually busy about? It's very easy to be busy, but are you busy with purpose? And I often, you know, it's funny because, it, and I'm be interested to know whether it's the same in the States, but in Australia, when you see people and say, hey, how are you? They go, oh, busy, really busy. Um, and you go, okay. I mean, it just seems to be this mantra, we're busy, but are we actually busy on purpose? and delivering something or are we just busy with stuff that's not really adding value to our life i think it's similar there's there's a superficiality to that and i i think it's probably related to a lot of the dissatisfaction that that exists in many workplaces and frankly isn't isn't authentic yeah um on on pages 115 and 116 you quote anan and barsu essentially stating that transformational journeys cannot be fully mapped in advance that, that might be a frightening consideration, especially for a deterministic mindset. What's the best way to embark on a new path? Yeah, it's interesting. I one of, A bit like the word busy, one of the most overused phrases in the corporate language is we are going to transform. And in fact, the organization isn't transforming. It's going through a transitional organizational change where it's going from a defined state to a very clear new state. When you're going through a transformation, because there are so many unknowns, you're not entirely clear how you're going to get there or even exactly what the end state's going to look like. You might have some objectives and you'll have some clear goals, 
but you're not going to be able to map everything out. And that's the biggest challenge facing corporates today. There are so many unknowns. And yet as leaders, we're taught to work with knowns and certainty. And so helping leaders get equipped with, it's okay to have ambiguity and it's okay to be uncertain. I'm going to be making the best decision I can make with the details, the evidence, the facts I've currently got. And actually that may change as we uncover what we're working through. So part of it is equipping leaders to really understand we're working in a new world, a new world of complexity. What does that mean for the skills that I need in terms of how I lead, but also how I make decisions, how I process information. And so all of the techniques around mindfulness, being present, being really focused, not multitasking, all of those activities where leaders get better equipped at how they manage how they use their brain optimally is one of the things that will really help people get comfortable with actually being uncertain is okay. It doesn't mean that I'm a bad leader. It's just me being aware that we're embarking on something that we haven't done before and consequently, consequently, that just means there's a whole heap of unknowns and we need to collectively work through that and at each step assess, are we still on the right path? I really want to share that answer with with, with a board that I recently served on where I was a, a trustee. One of one of the committees that I, I served on was, was this, a strategic committee and our chair for at least a year was trying to get the committee to focus on answering the what to do rather than the how. And I think in every meeting over several years, we repeatedly failed because everyone wanted the deterministic approach, how to do something, how to do something, when we as the the steering agents or the trustees weren't, that really wasn't our role. It was to point the direction and let others then who ran the organization figure out how to do that. But it's a, a difficult temptation to overcome, it seems. It is a difficult tech temptation. I also think sometimes as leaders, we've been successful because we do stuff and we get things done. And so it's natural to want to fall back into that. Well, let's just make a decision. Let's get it done as opposed to going, well, what does it mean for me if I step back a bit and help create the framework in which the change can occur, but also then empower people just to go for it and see where it lands. I agree. Now, over here in the States, it certainly seems many, many people over here are conditioned to believe that happiness comes after you're successful. You've encountered the opposite, that happiness leads to success. What, what led you to believe that? I, look, it, it's, I think I'm incredibly lucky in this regard. You know, if you, do, if you look at research into happiness, they will say that everybody has a certain set point for happiness, meaning a certain baseline as to how happy we are. I have a very um, high set point, meaning I'm just naturally happy all the time. It's just part of my disposition. You know, it doesn't mean that I don't have bad days and that there aren't things in my life that don't work out, but I have, you know, you know, resilient uh, as well. And when you look into all of the research, it shows that if someone has, you know, they get a promotion or they win a, the lottery, you know, win a car, so something that people would typically think will make you happy, you'll have this bounce and your set point goes up, but then it goes back down to that original set point. And if you actually want to change your set point for happiness, 
there's a whole raft of things that have nothing to do with material possessions and career success that change your set point. It's things around, you know, gratitude, meditation, spending time with people that matter to you, helping others. So all of the things that are, have nothing to do with material possessions. And so when I kind of started looking at my own sort of level of happiness and then started digging into the research around it, and part of it was motivated by um, a family member that I had who was going through depression. And I was, you know, looking at, you know, all the aspects around positive psychology, which then led me down this path. I realized that, wow, so much of what happens, you know, the choices that we make um, and that there are things that we can do to change our set point for happiness. And I would add another book to my list of my top 10. And it's a book by a guy called, he's a uh, Tal Ben-Shahar, and it's called Happier. And he gives a whole series of practices that people can do to actually change their set point for happiness. So it's worth adding to your reading list. I'm making a note as we speak, and I'm 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 certain you'll be enthusiastic enough to send me a follow-up email with a link because I'd love to get that. Just a Absolutely. just a couple more questions. Your description of integrity I found appealing. You wrote having the courage to act plus self-awareness. Then then you went further and recommended we leave our our, our comfort zone. How is leaving one's comfort zone related to knowing our core purpose? Because it can be if you don't if you don't know yourself, I think it's impossible to really understand where your integrity lies and where it doesn't lie. And sometimes you have to leave your comfort zone to back up what you stand for. I often say to people, if you don't know what you stand for, then how do you expect people to stand behind you or beside you? And if you know what you stand for and then you're not willing to stand up for that, that's almost worse. And we see it so often these days, particularly in politics, where people are known for something and then they get into positions of power and don't live out what they said that they were, you know, their, their ethos or um, what they believed in. And so for me, integrity, it's just so critical because it's not just your brand. It's how people connect with you. It's how people see you. It's your reputation. And so it's one of those things where once it's tarnished, it's so hard to get back. And living a life of integrity in a world that can be challenging and a world where sometimes you may be asked to do things that don't sit comfortably with you can be hard. But when you step across that line, and I always say this to my coaching clients who work in challenging environments, you need to know where that line is because as soon as you step over that line, it becomes easier and easier to just keep stepping over that line and then eventually where are you left? All your integrity is gone. It sure is. And it's it's interesting because two of the most difficult parts I find when facilitating leadership classes are getting people to actually document in their leadership philosophy, A, what, what they actually will not tolerate, and B, the commitment to feedback. If, if we don't list those, then we're never going to have those connections made that you're calling out that are fundamental basis of integrity. So, um, we're we're starting to 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 wind wind down here, Michelle. But what what kind of feedback do people usually share with you, 
after they read Step Up? What a lovely question. Um, for the people who know me, when they read it, they say, wow, it felt like you were talking to me. I could read your voice through the page. And for me, that was beautiful because it shows that the book is me. It's authentically me. It's not something that's been written by somebody else or crafted in a way to sound like somebody else. It's very me. And then for the people who don't know me, when they read it, they say, thank you. I hadn't thought about influence through that lens. And I hadn't thought about all of the things that I could do to better position myself in a work environment. And that it's not just a workbook. It is a book absolutely that was designed around helping people understand how to, you know, influence in complex environments. But there's so much more in the book around how do you live out a life that is a life well lived? Because I always say it's hard to divorce work and personal life. The two are so closely meshed. If there's something not working in one, it's going to impact the other. Isn't that true? And how, how often we seem to pretend that they're separate. It, it, seems, it, seems a, it takes a long time for us to mature and realize that they're often one and the same. So looking ahead, Michelle, what, what projects are you working on now that you'd like to share with, with our audience? My second book. So my second book comes out first week of March in 2018, and it's all about career reinvention and liberating your career. So in a world where, you know, so many jobs are being automated or changed, and also at the same time, there are people in organizations who just feel stuck. Now they're in a role they don't like and they don't know how to get out and do something else. And so the book is very designed around a career reinvention cycle and helping people reinvent their career so that they can leap forward into another career. Fantastic. And of course, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to having a copy of that, whether it's gift-wrapped or not, and, and, re and likewise reviewing that uh, to help you. This has been a wonderful joint cast, Michelle, and I can't tell you how grateful I am. I've, I find the story of, of how we connected and being guest speakers at the same conference only five or six months ago almost uh, not just serendipitous. It makes me wonder if there's a greater forces at work that made sure that we connected. So thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you for listening today. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E. And visit www.choink.com to sign up for an upcoming Leadership Excellence course and to support one of our worthy causes, such as Autism Speaks Walk.